Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you look at comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Glenn I'm Eric Ray. And we have a couple of guests with us that uh, can introduce themselves now, and uh, if you would, please. I'm Carrie Hall. And I'm Janice Perkel. And we'll get to our guests in just a moment, but we are live at the Pacific Northwest Division of the IAI. Northwest Association of Forensic Scientists Joint Conference. That's the, if anyone's keeping score at home, that's the PNWDIAINWAFS. That's quite the acronym. Well done, sir. Well done. Yes. And there are uh, about 100 plus people uh, that have been at the conference uh, all week here in Portland, Oregon, which is where we're recording from. And we've got a nice little live studio audience. What are we saying? About maybe 40 ish people, maybe 50 ish people. Uh, very, very, very great t- turnout here on a Friday morning. Thank you guys for, for joining. Say hi, everybody. And so we uh, we have a couple of, of guests. Uh, very honored to have a a, a, um, a guest here on the show. Uh, her name is Janice Perical. She's an attorney, uh, a lawyer with the and, and executive director of the Forensic Justice Project uh, here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, my understanding is this is a forensic science expert group of litigators who assist um, trial attorneys when they need a forensic expert, someone who is a a lawyer who knows how to deal with forensic evidence like DNA, fingerprints, and so on, and you guys come in and you guys assist the local attorneys in their their trial cases. Is that a, a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment, although to be fair, we just started last year, so it's really just two lawyers and an intern right now, so there's not a whole group of us, but we will get there. All right, well... You're 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 growing, yes. Growing at a, at a at a fast rate, and then we have a return guest as yes. well. Yeah, I was going to say maybe maybe the name of your podcast could be Two Lawyers and an Intern." Exactly, <laughs> forensic justice. Yes, oh, I like that. Um, That's a good idea. Yeah, so I'm Carrie Hall. I was an invited guest to this conference to present. So I presented uh, Tuesday afternoon, most of Wednesday, and some of Thursday morning. So I have been quite busy with the conference. Uh, they have been very wonderful in social activities, so many, many late nights and visits to the Portland breweries, uh, but just a wonderful group of people to be here with this week. Yes, and I, I'd like to echo that too, and a big thanks to uh, Nikki Wagar, uh, who was kind enough to invite me out as well, and uh, I was, she put me to work though yesterday, and I was working all, all day. Um, from from morning till night, uh, but uh, Nikki Wagar is the vice president of the Pacific Northwest Division of the IAI, and uh, thank you again, Nikki, for for inviting us out. Eric was also invited, but he could not make it. Eric, what uh, what was your problem? Why why aren't you here, brother? As regular listeners understand, I started a new job earlier this year, and unfortunately, my schedule landed me in West Virginia for this half of the month. So I've been looking forward to eventually making it to a Pacific Northwest Division conference for quite a while now, and I promise that I will very soon. I just don't know when yet. Well, all right. Yeah, it's a, it's a great conference. I've been been invited a couple of times, and it's a, it's a really good group. Thank you guys for, for, for hosting and having us. All right, so I'd like to get started here. Uh, Janice, please, if you wouldn't, uh, tell us a little bit about the Forensic Justice Project, some of the, the, the kinds of cases you personally get involved in, and uh, what is, what's, what's the mission of the Forensic Justice Project. Sure. So the Forensic Justice Project, it's a, it's a nonprofit. So we started last year, 
And the goal is to either correct wrongful convictions post-conviction or to try and prevent them pretrial. So we will step into cases and partner with criminal defense attorneys uh, to challenge faulty forensics or to try and find helpful forensics. And then we step out of the way and let the defense attorneys do their thing. So we're specialized counsel in that way. Uh, some of the cases that we work on are things like DNA cases or your typical pattern matching cases like latent print analysis or tire tracks or shoe prints. Um, anything where we've got some issue of forensic science and we need specialized counsel to explore that issue. All right, great. Yeah, Jan Janice had a presentation earlier this week that I attended, and it was very interesting to hear about some of the cases that uh, that they've worked on, and particularly how they think forensic science could be helpful in the before the conviction actually happens. So I think that's something that's really unique about their project is, you know, soliciting advice and looking for cases before the wrongful convictions happen. Um, so I, I was really impressed with the, the, the work they do, and they made some specific recommendations to the forensic science community, because if you have a room of forensic scientists, there's no better time to spread your message and your mission than to the people who are actually doing the work. So I was, I was very impressed with their message. What was one of the suggestions, if, if I might ask? Sure. Um, I think the, the biggest thing for me, and I, one of the things I talked about yesterday, or maybe it was the day before yesterday in our presentation, was the idea of going back to the scientific method, going back to the principle of falsification. And a lot of the problems that we see in some of these cases that we're dealing with is because the analyst has deviated from the scientific method. They've, there's been a narrative that's been created around the case, and you can see in hindsight how the forensics were tailored to fit that narrative. And if we go back to the, our basics of the scientific method and the principle of falsification, then we're following the evidence rather than following the narrative to fit the evidence. And is there a particular discipline that you have expertise in or sort of your, uh, if a DNA case comes up, you give it to that lawyer. If a fingerprint case comes up, give it to that one. What's, what's, your, what's your area of interest? My area of interest is um, DNA and anything pattern matching. We'd like to get to a place where we have specialized attorneys so that I can say something like that. You know, if, if something comes up in toxicology, I can give it to the tox expert something comes up in DNA, I can take it myself. We're not at that point yet, but that's the goal is to get there. Yeah. Okay, great. And my understanding is that you, you have a pretty crazy backstory that got you interested and involved in uh, litigating in the first place and the whole criminal justice system. Um, I know some of the people probably in the audience you know, may have had the benefit of seeing your presentation the other day. Uh, for the listeners out there who are not here in attendance, could you share a little bit of that story? Yeah. So um, going back, I was, I've been a litigator for over 12 years, and I actually got my start in civil work, dealing with money. I was doing complex commercial litigation at a big firm up in Seattle, um, and I was a baby lawyer, a third-year lawyer, when my older brother Jason was wrongfully convicted. And he was wrongfully convicted in Nicaragua and spent nearly two years being slowly starved in a Nicaraguan prison. And that's what landed me in innocence work. So it was definitely not by choice. It was rather, rather by force and just by necessity of how do you get your brother out of a Nicaraguan prison? What was he convicted of? He was convicted of international drug trafficking, money laundering, and organized crime. Wow. wow. And he was actually, so he had gone to Nicaragua to join the Peace Corps. 
and ended up staying in country after his service and married a Nicaraguan girl and had a young son. His son was only three years old when he was arrested. And one of the complicating factors for us is that his son has Down syndrome. So it's hard to explain to a three-year-old with Down syndrome how and why his dad is not there. Um, so that there were all kinds of interpersonal complications to that case. Um, but Jason was ultimately housed in their maximum security prison um, where there's no running water, there's no electricity, there's very, very little food. So he lost about 40 pounds in the first few months after his arrest. Um, and we were kind of racing against the clock to try and get him out. Now, were how were you how were you participating in this from up here? Were you working with lawyers there or were you doing some of the litigation? Were you filing briefs? What about the language barrier? I mean, how how how, how did you accomplish this? Sounds like a fairly Herculean task. I would like to say by luck. Huh. Um, so when all of this happened, when Jason was first arrested, I didn't have any criminal background or um, Nicaraguan background. I didn't know Spanish. So I had to rely on a team of people, and we had lawyers in Nicaragua and investigators. I had human rights lawyers in D.C. I was working with. We had a public relations team. We were getting a lot of people to donate time to be able to build a team around Jason. And that's ultimately how we, came, how we got out of this. It, it certainly wasn't just me. It was a team of people who were really dedicated to the idea that an innocent person should not be locked in prison. And were you able to convince effectively a judge or a jury? I mean, who, who ultimately agreed to, to release him? It was an appellate panel. Oh. So Jason was convicted, sentenced to 22 years at the maximum security prison. We knew that he wasn't going to last another year in that prison, the way that health was going. Um, but ultimately, it went up to an appellate panel, and there was enough pressure on that case that we were able to convince the appellate panel to let him go. Wow. Okay. So, what was the evidence or lack of evidence that they that they had for for him? It was a complete lack of evidence. There was so drug trafficking charge, no actual drugs in the case. Okay. Money laundering charge, no no illegal money in the case. All right. Organized crime. He was charged with ten other individuals who were all all Nicaraguans. All of them knew each other, and some of them were related to each other. But they all looked at Jason and said. We don't know that guy. So no organization. Huh. And so it was this complete absence of evidence, and the prosecution actually came into court and said, well, there's no drugs because he must have sold him, therefore he's a drug trafficker. There's no illegal money because he must have spent it, therefore he's a money launderer. It was the complete absence of evidence that they were relying on as proof that he committed a crime. So based on that evidence, Eric and I would make excellent drug-dealing, smuggler, money-laundering, organized crime, international crime lords. As would most of us. Awesome. Yes. Excellent. There you go, Eric. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm sure some people might be thinking that this is Nicaragua, it's, so it's different. Something like this can't happen here in the States. But there are plenty and plenty of plenty of examples of similar injustices happening here as well. There are. That's right. There's been over, I think when I last checked earlier this week, there was over 2,400 exonerations across the country. So that's, you know, over 2,000 men and women who were innocent and locked in prison for sometimes decades. 
Uh, have you seen any particular cases here in Oregon that you can talk about? Um, I actually just finished a three-day trial in an innocence post-conviction case, but I can't talk about it because we're waiting for the opinion to come out, which will come out in the next two weeks or so. Was this one of your first cases that you litigated in this position? It was. It was actually a case that I started on five years ago and have been litigating up to trial two weeks ago. Actually, that, that, that raises an interesting point, and maybe you know some of the statistics. Can you share with the audience that when it comes to a post-conviction, so someone's been convicted at this point, what's the average amount of time it takes to work one of these post-conviction cases? Especially, let, let's assume the person was actually innocent and wrongfully convicted. What kind of timeline are they looking at to, you know, to, have, to get justice eventually and, and get freed? So I think there's, there's two different questions there. There's the total time that a person might spend in prison having been innocent and waiting to get some kind of relief. And that could be decades, because you're talking about going through a trial first and then a direct appeal, post-conviction, and potentially federal habeas. So that could be years and years and years. Yeah, I heard 20 years is sort of the average for uh, exhausting all possible options, that once you've been convicted, it could take up to 20 years to to just get someone to actually hear the case and decide, yeah, this is pretty obvious. You should never have been convicted in the first place. That's right, yeah. But then there's a second question of, okay, say an attorney gets a post-conviction case, how long would that take just to get through the post-conviction? And that could be, I think that the average is somewhere more than seven years or something yeah. like that. So it's it's still an, in a not insignificant period of time. Yeah, I was at the uh, the Parent Body IAI conference a couple of years ago, and Sarah Chu, I don't know if you know yes. Sarah. Okay, yes. Sarah's great. She is. Uh, so uh, Sarah Chu from the Innocence Project, she was there, and she made a comment to the audience that has always stuck with me. And what she said was, I don't think people in the audience realize that once you're convicted, how almost impossible it is to reverse the wheels of justice and actually then get, you know, basically some sort of justice later uh, in a post-conviction. It, she, she said it's almost almost impossible. The system is not designed post-conviction to help, you know, uh, to help detect or um, in, in some way identify cases of wrongful conviction, that the system is just set up for conviction. And once you're convicted, everything at that point, there isn't any real kind of order or good system for you know, for, for showing your, your, your innocence. Yeah, oddly enough, our system wasn't set up to recognize innocence in the first place. Right. Right? I mean, you either get a, a guilty or an acquittal. You don't get a you're innocent verdict. <laughs> That's a great so point. So it, it wasn't set up for that purpose. And then once you get into post-conviction, our system assumes that it never makes mistakes. And there's actually <laughs> there's actually lines in cases from leading justices around the country. One of my favorite lines, favorite because it, it's just ironic, um, a justice said in a written opinion that there's a ghost of an innocent man. That, that that thing does not exist. An innocent man convicted in our system just doesn't exist. And then we found out over the years that that is absolutely not the case. There are innocent people in prison, but we're still not set up to deal with that. In Oregon, we have no recognized right for actual innocence. So there's no claim once you're convicted to get back into court to say, but wait, I'm innocent. You made a mistake. Let me out. There's no way back into the court for that. Yeah, and that's some of the that's some of the policy work that groups like you yours are doing around the country to sort of get some maybe statutory 
laws on the books or through case law, how do we come back and look at some of these cases that have someone who is saying, I am actually innocent? How do I get my day in court again? That's right. Yeah. And exonerees are a huge part of that work. If you can put a name and a face to these stories so that people understand, oh, I see who I'm affecting when this person walks into court, I think that's a huge benefit to having the exonerees as part of our community. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. Well, I'm going to, Eric, did you have any questions you'd like to ask? Yeah, I wanted to clear up something real quick. What's the timeline? What year did your brother get out of prison there in Nicaragua? He was exonerated in September of 2012. Okay, so in these past seven years where you've had that personal focus of looking at that side of the criminal justice system, it's been only seven years, but still, have you seen any changes here in the States on any of this? Any on on post-conviction relief or on establishing innocence? Has anything really changed in these seven years or does it feel like we're heading for change? I can't say that anything's substantively changed. I mean, there, there have been incremental movements. You know, we, we have new exonerations probably every week um, across the country. There's obviously been changes in, in legislation, things like that. But the incremental changes are so minor in compared to the massive amount of the problems that I can't say that we've seen some significant change. And the reality is, is that the law is just really slow to catch up to the rest of the world. All right. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and have a couple of questions as we move into getting your perspective as as an attorney. And and again, as a practicing attorney, so you're not, you're not necessarily, um, I mean, you're, you're in the trenches. I mean, you're down there actually in the courtroom, either arguing, uh, against forensics or for forensics, depending on you know the, the issues in the case. So I have, I have a few questions regarding some of the changes in the forensic science field that we've experienced in the last 10 years or so. All right, so let's start with the reports. We've had lots of different reports. We've had the National Academy of Sciences, NRC report, Strengthening Forensic Science in 2009. We've had the PCAST report. We've had the AAAS, that's the... Was it, Eric, American Association for the Advancement of Science? Oh, I was going to say that, but you've got it. Does that sound right? Yeah. All right. Uh, so, and we had, you know, quite a few big reports that have come out from these various, you know, commissions. And there was even the National Forensic Science Commission as well. They didn't have reports, but they had policy that they were releasing. So lots of groups are getting together to comment on forensic science. What have you thought about these reports, and how are you personally using these reports in your litigation? I think the reports are great. I think it's so important that there is some kind of a partnership between the scientists and the legal community, because otherwise it's just a bunch of us lawyers making it up as we go. So I think the reports are really helpful in that regard. I have relied on the NAS report and PCAST a number of times in litigation, but I can't say to any success. I, I think that there's still, even though NAS is 10 years old now, there's still relatively recent reports when it comes to the law. Would you say that you used, for example, the NAS report or PCAST report to attempt to exclude evidence or more for diminishing its value you know, during, you know, during a hearing or during a, tr- a trial? 
I've attempted the first. I've attempted to exclude forensics or exclude portions of an opinion. So it limit the opinion. It limit the opinion exactly. So I've done it that way, and um, a lot of what I get is pushback on that idea that science has changed. Mm. Because even though I think logically a court would know science has changed when it comes to what happens in the courtroom the judges are still bound by precedent and so they're looking at decisions they have made again and again and again and again over the years and they they have this automatic gut reaction of don't come in here and tell me that i was wrong all those other times i'm gonna fall back on all those other times oh judges love it when you do that oh i'm sure they do absolutely yeah uh, any um, any particular discipline that you you know you see in these reports and you go this should not be in the courtroom or well let, let me ask you any disciplines you think that just no should not be in the courtroom I'm going to hedge my language because I recognize my audience here <laughs> and I don't want to offend anyone uh, but I oh, we're, we're used to that. <laughs> I, I think that we can probably all agree that bite mark analysis should not be in the courtroom. Um, I think that we can all probably agree that hair, micros- hair microscopy should not be in the courtroom. I think we've all sort of come to that conclusion. Okay. Um, there are others. I kind of think of forensics on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. So there are, there's one end of the spectrum that would be things like DNA, our most objective forensics. It's not perfect. It's subject to human error, but it is the most objective that we got. That's at one end of the spectrum other end of the spectrum are things like bite mark analysis, which we know that there are problems with. It shouldn't be in the courtroom. And then we've got everything that's sort of in the middle, where some of it falls closer to the DNA, more objective end of the spectrum, and just isn't quite there yet, so should be limited in some way, and just can't go beyond the science when it comes into the courtroom. And then some of it falls closer to the bite mark end of the spectrum, where it's, it's got limited probative value, and we need to be careful about that. Okay. So because we have such a, an audience of fingerprint examiners, yeah. so what are your thoughts about, about fingerprints? What are some of the limits and issues that you see with respect to fingerprints? I, um, I think that fingerprints fall closer to the DNA end, but not nearly as close to the DNA end of the spectrum as we thought they did. And I think what's coming into the courtroom is still this idea that fingerprints are infallible, and once you have one, you're done, and end of story. And, and why would you say you, you still see that coming to the courtroom? Because you've heard analysts testify that way. What, all right, so what are some of the things you've heard? We've actually, we've got a case right now. Um, we were amicus in a case that is in the Oregon Court of Appeals. We're waiting on a decision, and it was a burglary case. There's one latent print found on a bottle of liquor. That's the only evidence in the case. And this woman was convicted solely on the basis of that latent print. The analyst came into the courtroom and said, there's zero error rate. She's never made a mistake in her career, and no one in her department has ever made a mistake. And she made an in-court identification of the defendant as the source of the fingerprint. So... That's a problem for me when I look at that testimony and I say, we know that those conclusions are not supported by the science. That never should have gone to the jury that way. And, and even if the person may be the source of the fingerprint, your objection is to um, the um, 
over-exaggeration of the strength of the evidence That's and right. how it was actually presented. That's right. That it was, even if it's accurate, it may have been presented in a more prejudicial fashion. Right. Is that fair? That's fair. Okay. All right. Um, <coughs> all right. So one, one question, like in that case, for example, and you said it's on a liquor bottle. Um, what about the idea that the liquor bottle is movable, transportable? It could have been on the surface at a previous time when it was in the liquor store at some point. I mean... Were, were any of those issues explored in the case? I think that's absolutely right. It's a movable object. There should have been some consideration for that. Unfortunately, it never came up. It was never litigated in the case. And so I think when you look at an issue like that, you can see lawyers aren't necessarily well-versed enough in forensics to identify that as an issue. Right. Once you see something like a latent fingerprint, everybody kind of shuts their critical thinking off, and, and that's the, the whole problem. Yeah. I think this was something else that you mentioned in the presentation, that often one of the causes of miscarriages of justice are inadequate legal representation. And the pre- you and your co-presenter made the point that that's usually combined with some other factor, though. So it might be that they didn't know how to challenge the forensic science. So they might have been a great attorney, but they just didn't know what they didn't know. And so there wasn't a a great defense when there would have been some other options that they could have presented during trial because they simply weren't aware that they didn't have the the background knowledge to challenge properly. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Eric, anything? I think that would be one of the hardest things to deal with is having that this great argument now, but with a lot of post-conviction relief, since no one brought it up at the time, well, now that's off limits. The strength of your argument may not be allowed to be brought up because the initial lawyer didn't establish that as an argument in the initial trial. It's just so backwards to the way that a scientist thinks about the situation or presenting new information and reevaluating everything from before and considering everything new altogether. Uh, Maybe that's a good thing that we got into science instead of law and how frustrating that would be to not be able to look at these new ideas and new points that are being made. Yeah, we talked a lot about that very problem in an article that um, my counterpart, Eliza Kaplan, and I wrote, and then we talked about it at our, at our presentation, that there's this tension between science and the law because you scientists are always looking for that new information to be able to change your opinions and talk about the phenomena that you see in a new way and that's considered a great thing in science it's the advancement of science whereas in the law we are bound by precedent we always look backwards and that's a huge problem for the law it's also a great thing for the law don't get me wrong we want to treat like cases alike because that's what guarantees equal protection under the law if i know i'm going to come before a court and i'm going to be treated the same as any other person that would come before that court that's a great thing but when it comes to, the, to science and the advancement of science, if we're treating like cases alike, it means that the law can never move forward past what we've known before. And that's a, a huge problem in the law. So I'd like to go back to your, your spectrum analogy, because I, I, I understand that your, your spectrum, you've got DNA on the one end and bite marks on the other and various kinds of evidence in the middle. So I have a view that's similar of, of a spectrum, but it has less to do with the categories of forensic science. Uh, for example, if I was to ask you, you know, what would you rather have a very clear fingerprint with, let's say, uh, n- nearly all the possible characteristics in the finger, 100 some minutia in, in a clear latent fingerprint versus a convoluted four-person mixture of DNA? I mean, which evidence would you rather you know, be dealing with in that situation? Whichever would I rather be dealing with? Yes. I guess 
here's where we come Which one do you think is more reliable <laughs> okay. under, under those circumstances? All right. So then I, I guess I would rather deal with the latent print analysis than the mixture analysis. Um, mostly because what I know about mixtures is that there's a whole world of complications that we don't yet know how to address. Whereas when I think about, okay, I've got a latent print, it's clear, and I've got 100 points of, of match, let's say, or consistency, um, at least I know that we're dealing with issues of sufficiency and, um, you know, clarity. And uh, I know that we don't have necessarily standards as to how many points need to match, but my world of problems is more limited than they would be in the DNA. The risk of error is less in the one. Right. Yeah. And, and so this is how I look at it. It's all about the, the amount of information and how reliable it is. So if you have a very clear fingerprint versus a very distorted fingerprint or a single person profile you know, DNA or dominant profile DNA versus a complex mixture. And even for bite marks, I mean, I agree. I mean, the, the studies show a deplorable error rate and real concerns that they can't even recognize sometimes an actual bite mark when, you know, in some of the studies that have been done. Um, but that's generally when you're dealing with bite marks on the skin. Right. Um, whereas if you had maybe a particularly discriminating set of teeth biting into a hard block of cheese where you almost have a perfect mold now of the teeth, might we in that case go, there's a lot more information and that actually makes it fairly discriminating and maybe in this instance, depending on what limits we put on the testimony, maybe there is some probative value to that evidence. I think that where it would come down to is that qualifying phrase you put in there, depending on the limits we put on the testimony. So if we can all be honest about those limits and and talk to jurors fairly transparently about this is what the science can tell us, but hey, this is what the science cannot tell us, then I think that's where it would come down to. And I think that is one of the problems in the culture of forensic science is that most forensic scientists are taught not to show any weakness yeah. and not open the door at all, that the last thing you want to do is open up to the possibility of error because as soon as you open up that door, an evil defense attorney will come in and make you look silly. That's right. That's right. The, the evil defendant will, come, will, will go free and the system will fall apart at that point. Yeah. So I think that if we can move beyond that culture into a culture of the science has to be separate from the advocacy system, then we might have more of a conversation. And that's the hardest part because it is so adversarial. I don't know if you've ever had to testify yourself, but having just said what I, I said, it is difficult when you, when you truly believe in the accuracy of your evidence and you followed all the protocols and did everything right, it is very hard to open up yourself to getting beat up on a witness stand, on record, you know, in front of an audience, and, you know, when the, the stakes are pretty high. Yeah, and I've never had to actually testify, and so I consider myself lucky because I know it you is a really difficult <laughs> job. Yes. Yeah. It's so hard to avoid that temptation, not just here, but in all aspects of life, you know, joining a side, joining a team, especially when one side seems to be against you, then it's just human nature to join the other side that isn't fighting against you. It really is a difficult thing, but like you're saying, important for forensic scientists to have that mindset. And I think the way that our laboratories are set up really 
aren't designed for that as well because we do a lot of the same types of exams. So we don't consider necessarily this evidence is only going to be acceptable in these very limited cases. That's not a way a crime lab director is going to want to run their unit. They want people who can do specific types of exams over and over and produce results and reports. Whereas if we begin to look at things like, well, every once in a while I get in a block of cheese where I can have some bite mark results or Every once in a while, I'll get in the latent print that has 150 features and I can write a report. I think that's not consistent with the way that we began in the forensic science laboratories and how they were set up. We started becoming more high throughput. All of these cases, you know, they were going out to all sorts of scenes to collect evidence. And so there was a a volume of evidence that needed to be analyzed instead of thinking, is this the right thing to do in this particular case? How how many cases and what's the sufficiency of the types of evidence we should be looking at and making reports and opinions upon? Uh, so going back to some of the recommendations in the, let's say, the NAS report, I'm uh, curious about your thoughts. Do you think that all laboratories must be accredited in order to get evidence into the courtroom? And is this some sort of um, legislative initiative that your group might take up? I'll be honest, I haven't actually thought about that issue. I I guess I've always looked for an accredited lab, and it has never occurred to me once to not use an accredited lab. So... um, well, what if the evidence is coming in, you know, the, the state's putting on evidence from a local police department, they're not accredited, um, and yet they're, you know, they've done crime scene, they've done bloodstain pattern analysis at the scene, maybe there is a bloody fingerprint at the crime scene that they've identified, but they're not accredited. So they're going based on experience instead, training and experience. Yes, I mean, yes, they will certainly go off of training experience and these things. And they may be very skilled at what they do, but they're not accredited, so they don't have any objective external way to show they've met some national or international standards or requirements. Yeah, I think that's that's where I would have the biggest problem, is that I wouldn't be able to know what are the standards that we're dealing with so that I know that your analysts have been trained a particular way or are following standards that... Uh, I could take to another state or another lab and say, are these valid standards? That's, that would be my biggest problem with the lack of accreditation, is that I can't guarantee that the opinions that are coming out are going to be valid, and I can't guarantee that my jurors aren't going to see that and say, well, but this person's trained and they are very convincing on the stand, so they must know what they're talking about. I mean, some states legislatively have gone this approach. Um, you know, Kansas, Texas, uh, New York, and uh, Minnesota. Minnesota. Um, you know, they have vari- variations of a law that basically says a publicly funded laboratory must be accredited in order to present evidence. You know, in a, in a criminal trial. And I think that's smart. There's got to be some minimum level of competency that we can all guarantee. Hmm. What I really like about this, Glenn, is that. Th- these aren't like a block of states with a similar political background. It, it spans the political spectrum as this is just a good idea for the citizens of our state to require this. And with the whole adversarial process, we're not entering another adversarial process of the politics of the situation. Yes, but they all do have one thing in common. They all have forensic scandals. And that's actually what caused yeah. the legislation in the first place. So yeah. it, it's unfortunate that the states will wait until that point Great. as opposed to getting ahead of it and requiring it maybe now before there is a scandal. Yeah, nothing like a good scandal to change the law, right? Basically. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, what about one of the recommendations of the separation of the forensic entities, you know, the testing laboratories and services from police organizations? It's, it was one of the more controversial recommendations in the report, and you know, almost all forensic providers in some way are part of law enforcement, you know, whether or not they're directly part of the sheriff's department or police department or part of the state, and there are varying levels of interaction, daily interactions with law enforcement. What are your thoughts on that? Any ideas or solutions? I am a fan of independent crime labs. I think that you cannot separate the culture of a, of a lab or the law enforcement culture from the science unless you have an independent crime lab. And I think that a lot of forensic analysts are hoping or thinking of their of the work that they do as being unbiased and transparent, but I can point out all the myriad of ways in which it doesn't end up being just that because of that culture. And so even when I'm thinking about, you know, the crime labs that I have worked against and I have been up against in cases, and I can point out points all along the analysis where I would have thought that something else would have come out of that all the way down to the end where they charge the defense for discovery and they don't charge the prosecution for that discovery. <laughs> I mean, access to information is a huge part of the criminal justice system. And if you're charging one side and not charging the other, it really says a lot about where you're trying to get that information to go. Have you seen instances where scientists were allowed to talk with the prosecutor and you know, plan strategy but couldn't speak to defense attorneys? Absolutely. And I know from experience that there are some analysts who have been willing to sit down with me and have a conversation, and I can trust them to be open with me about their analysis and what they did do, what they didn't do, and what they'd be willing to do. And then I know that there are other analysts who would never have that conversation with me but they'll have the conversation with the prosecution. That's a good point. It's not, not a great argument for neutrality. Right. And, and yeah. impartial, or impartiality and distance from the system. Right. Well, I don't disagree. I think it's interesting to note that we just talked about scandals, and there have been a few where these are not uh, there was testing scandals, and those agencies were not part of the law enforcement program. For instance, the Massachusetts lab that was not within law enforcement what I will argue, though, is that some of those problems were due to who they thought was going to be the end user of their product. So the court or the investigators charging these drug weights, they still felt some compelling uh, interaction with their work product results and felt that they needed to design them for these investigators. So it wasn't necessarily about the neutrality or the separation of the laboratory from uh, law enforcement in the building or some sort of monetary sense, but more about the way the analysts were thinking about who the user of their end products were going to be. And that's, I think, partially a cultural thing. And yes, it's much more difficult to have a culture change if you're directly working with law enforcement all the time. But I don't know that it's completely solved if you remove the, the crime laboratory from direct control of police departments. There still might be a close relationship there that will impact outcome of results. And that's a really good example of the Massachusetts one. Yeah, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, know, you mentioned you know, working with different kinds of agencies. Have you actually worked with what you would consider an independent lab? Are we talking about something like Sorensen or Bodie or something like that, that a private 
sector technology doing forensic science? That's right, yeah. yeah. So we'll have, you know, on, on our end, we'll have potentially evidence that needs to be tested that can't be tested at our state lab and so needs to go to Bodie or wherever. Yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, I mean, other than DNA, there there are very few private entities, laboratory systems, you know, um, other than private consultants, but it, it, it's a little harder to actually find those for if you want um, independent testing of firearms. It's not like there's an independent firearms laboratory that you yeah. can just send everything to. Yeah. We have such a hard time finding experts on the defense side because yes. of that very reason. You don't know who to trust, and there's just not that many of them so that you can have your go-to lab that always does whatever for you. One of the things that I've I've said for years is that my belief is that the government has monopoly on good forensic science. Absolutely. And it's it's unfortunate because all the, you know, the really good experts work work for the government and you don't get access to that. You may not even be able to get access to that laboratory. You know, it's hard for, I think, defense attorneys to get testing done that they need. So they have to go, of course, outside the system and the, the private consultants generally that you're going to deal with are ones who have retired and they may have retired a long time ago have not necessarily kept up with current events and when they retired 20 years ago to go private they were sort of locked in time so they have not been paying attention to it it's it's hard to find someone who's a good a good expert but keeping up with everything and involved with everything who's outside of the friend outside of the, the criminal justice system the the standard, I guess, prosecutorial system. Yeah, the the thing we're finding right now in DNA with that very problem is that most of the outside experts don't can't afford something like StarMix yeah, or exactly. TrueAllele to be able to run scenarios for the defense. So they're always just looking at the data from the state labs. Yeah, yeah. And each of the different disciplines have their own challenges. Leighton Prince is probably on the easier end of things for a third-party examiner to look at pictures, which can be emailed over. And there's not necessarily more sophisticated equipment needed beyond that, unless you have a case where those prints need to be searched through APHIS. Yeah, and, and that's exactly it, Eric. Access to APHIS, access to databases, or if I need to do additional processing because the, the state lab decided not to process certain other evidence, but the defense says, well, we'd like these things processed, and I need a processing laboratory to be able to do that. Just one additional comment that I'd, I'd love you to talk about related to how many cases these days you're seeing with DNA. So as the Innocence Project and some of these exonerations cases were first coming out, it seemed like most of the evidence ended up being DNA exams that conclusively proved this person could not have committed the crime. Is that still the trend these days? Or, um, you know, you're starting to have more experience with other forensic science. Are there other cases where you're using forensic science to say this person conclusively did not commit this crime? And how is that going in courts and motions? The DNA cases, I think when the the innocence movement started back in the early 90s, the DNA cases and a lot of the, the cases people were seeing were the single source uh, stranger rape cases. That was kind of the low-hanging fruit. We knew why the DNA was there, and it was relevant, and it pointed to one person, and the innocence was clear. 
those cases are now sort of in the minority of cases, and now we're seeing more and more of the complex mixture cases the and inclusions the, in the exactly. complex mixture. Which yeah, lots of people could be included. Which, exactly, yeah. and we don't know what the the relevance or the probative value of that yeah. match is. We're also seeing a lot of cases where the it's not a stranger rape case, so we don't have a rape kit. We have evidence at a crime scene, and we don't know the relevance of the DNA on that evidence. And so we've got arguments about whether or not it's related to the crime. Are you seeing more movement towards activity level in DNA? For example, given this amount of DNA, this would have been this sort of contact with the the victim as opposed to, you know, um, accidental transfer or something that, you know, given this amount of DNA that must have been him strangling her as opposed to him, you know, um, being in the home at one point and possibly touching some object that came in contact with you know with her are you seeing more of those sort of what we call activity level how the dna got there the manner in which it got there as opposed to who's the source of the dna definitely on the argument side in the courtroom there's a lot of argument about activity level as well as redundancies Mm -hmm. we're always looking for those redundancies in order to shore up that activity level conclusions so um the DNA is not nearly as clear-cut now as it once was when the innocence movement started. So we are branching out more and more to these other forensics, and how can we use these other forensics in the same type of way to get us to innocence? Interesting. I have a question about how you choose your cases. So maybe someone has a case that's coming up for trial, and they might consult you on you know forensic issues that are coming up in trial. But the post-conviction cases, how do you – I assume that – you receive letters and requests for help, how do you sort through those cases and say, yes, this one seems like a good project for us versus no, this one seems like we don't have a lot of options to help them with? How does that work in your office? Most of our cases come through referrals from the attorney. Okay, So there's that sort of initial triage. But if we're talking about a DNA case, if it is something like it's all we're dealing with is DNA and it's fairly straightforward, We'll go after that case. If we're dealing with other forensics, it's, I hate to say it this way, but it's almost a you know it when you see it kind of gut feeling. You're looking at is there a path to innocence? And if we walk that path, what's, what's that going to look like? Is it going to look like this is a once in a million shot that is, is going to take the next 30 years and may never pan out? Or does it look more like, no, there's a viable path here because it's an area of forensics that we know there's potential to move on. Okay. So it is more of a gut level feeling, which is unfortunate. I mean, I I wish that there was a better answer for that. That's just sort of where we're at. Yeah, I can just imagine you guys get treated, you know, mail piles of letters from people are saying, please help me, I'm innocent, and how imagining the stress of having to sort that and deal with the very compelling evidence that they're presenting in their letters and then knowing uh, this one doesn't seem like a good option for us. We're not going to pursue that, particularly because you have had experience with your brother, that close relationship, and that's how you got into this. So you really want to make change for these people who have compelling stories, and yet if you feel like you're not going to have success, that might be very difficult and stressful. It is. It's the the personal side of this is makes it really difficult to do this work because I know that when I first started with my brother's case, that first probably six months was just me spinning my wheels 
and begging people for help and people slamming doors in my faces because they would look at my brother and they would say he's dark-skinned, he had long hair and covered with tattoos. How is he not a drug trafficker? (laughs) So that was really difficult to deal with and I know what that feels like and so turning somebody away on that kind of gut level feeling is not my favorite thing in the world and is really not a good answer to how you deal with innocence in the criminal justice system. Hmm. All right, so I'm going to ask you a silly question. Any guilty pleasures, anything you like to watch, uh, whether it's Law & Order, CSI? What, how do you get your entertainment value for the criminal justice or system? Or de-stress after yeah. rejecting <laughs> some of these good candidate cases. I... I don't really watch legal dramas, and I think it's because I think you guys are all probably the same way with with crime shows. Once you understand how ridiculous the premise is yeah. of the show, you can no longer stomach it. Not even from a sense of like, oh, that angers me, but more of like, this is just silly. So I don't really watch legal dramas, but I do watch crime shows, which mm-hmm. you guys would probably not watch. So right. I will binge watch things like um, Sons of Anarchy is my favorite drama of all time um right now we're watching um snowfall on fx oh yeah, yeah. which is a great show yeah. i i know the that of cocaine exactly cocaine. Yeah. yeah i know that's probably very unrealistic but i like that stuff all right fair enough um i was going to ask a little bit about some of the improvements that you'd like to see and taking particularly fingerprints where do you think we we need to improve? And what would you, as a defense attorney, like to see us as a discipline be able to do for, for fingerprints? Where do we need to go? I think the transparency is absolutely key. I understand that there is that culture of not wanting to open yourself up to challenge, but I think that's the, the core problem that we have with forensics is our need to be able to challenge it, to be able to say good or bad, here's what it tells us and here's what it doesn't tell us. Um, one of the huge frustrations that I've had in cases is just being able to get the assumptions tell me what your assumptions are about your conclusions and trying to get that basic level of understanding has been almost impossible Mm. in cases so having a greater level of transparency i think would be a phenomenal change to the forensic discipline do you think that that should be in the reports basically before it even goes to trial so that there should be more transparency and more information in the reports as opposed to a simple one line, one latent fingerprint identified to the defendant. If you want to know any more, ask me on the stand. Absolutely. Yes. And what about those assumptions? Do you have an example of something you have been expecting to see that someone would disclose as an assumption? That might be helpful for those of us who don't know what we should be disclosing as an assumption. Yeah, I think that one of the the basics of of our problem with latent fingerprints is okay, you're you're saying that it's a match. We all sort of understand, because we've studied this discipline, that you are not concluding that it's a match to, to the exclusion of all other people in the world. But when you say a match, it certainly sounds like that's what you're concluding. So there's an assumption in there that, that's, that we're not talking about to the exclusion of all others, even though you would only know that if you were actually sort of in the know 
about latent fingerprint analysis. Mm -hmm. So something like that, or um, you know, there's an assumption about the mechanism of touch, right? It, it sort of assumes that the mechanism of touch is sufficient enough that there's a, a minimal level of distortion in the latent print. Disclosing the fact that you don't know anything about the, the mechanism of touch so that you don't know what the level of distortion would be, that would be helpful for people who are not in the know about latent fingerprints and don't understand that there could be distortion because of the mechanism of touch. Things like that, which seem probably basic to a lot of you, and they seem like, of course, we all know this stuff. What about whether or not a latent print was deemed complex versus non-complex, straightforward, and where that cutoff or approximate cutoff might be? Yeah. What's the verbal equivalent of that? Sure. Yeah. Um, what about if there was a, um, a difference of opinion? The first examiner says they think it's identifiable. The verifier that it goes to says, nah, I don't think there's enough there for me. They do a conflict resolution, give it to another examiner. That examiner says, yeah, I identify that, and it goes out. What about the minority opinion? Yeah, that would be great to know. It would also be great if, you know, if you, um, I don't know enough. I haven't worked APHIS, right? So I don't know what comes back from APHIS. But if you, if you got a list of candidate matches back from APHIS, and you decided that the fourth on the list was the the, the most sufficient match and three others ahead of that weren't good enough i'd want to know why mm. things like that i think would be on a level of transparency that was would be what i would expect to see okay. can i ask then do you have an opinion about what i'm going to call escalated reporting so for those of us in the forensic science field we know that oftentimes our re results are negative or we don't find anything to report on so some of these transparencies are things that might be very interesting for an attorney or even required for a jury's educational perspective a vast majority of our cases are never going to get into court so is there a possibility in your mind that we could write these sort of traditional reports that are going to this very first set of user, usually a detective, an investigator, someone who's looking for this information quickly. And then if things start progressing, now we're, now we're going to the prosecutor and the prosecutor's looking at, do I charge this person? The lab might say, okay, here's some additional information that we, we didn't write in our formal original report, but if you're considering charging this person, here's some additional information you need to know. And then the third set of escalation might be, okay, now this co case is going to go to trial. The jury is going to take this report back in with them to the jury room, and they are going to study it. So you should explain these things even further, and they might be from the perspective of a lay person. Do you ever see something like that happening, or do you think that always from the outset the examiner should have this full and transparent report? I've never actually seen the escalating report. I, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, maybe it doesn't exist, but I think it's a great concept. I think I, Houston's playing around with something like okay. that right now. I think Europe does something similar as well. They have this, you know, investigation report and then the, the court report, but I don't know of any American agencies that are doing it. But I've never seen it. I would want, if, if, if there was a move towards that, I would want to make sure that the information came out ahead of grand jury. Okay, Because that's one of the frustrating parts of my work is that we get down to trial, we move to exclude the evidence. I've had several cases where I've moved to exclude evidence, and the prosecutor on the morning of the pretrial hearing comes in and says, you know what, you're right, we won't use that. And I'm like, well, why are we here then? That never should have gone to grand jury so that this person was charged. So if, 
if we were doing something like escalating reporting, I would just want that to come out before grand jury so the grand jury isn't sitting there thinking, match is a match is a match, we're all done here. Okay. Uh, so on, on that note, one of the big movements in the fingerprint discipline is moving towards statistical modeling. So instead of just saying the match, um, we might say uh, th there could be different ways to do this. You might say this is an identification. I have matching characteristics, and the probability to observe these characteristics in some other randomly selected person is approximately 1 in 150 million. Thoughts about statistical models and how that would look? Would that make things more complicated? You have to educate jurors on statistics. You've dealt with DNA. You know that once you go down that road, things can get a little complicated. Thoughts about that? It is complicated. I, I don't think that there's a clean answer, or at least I haven't seen a clean answer anywhere. Um, I like the, the idea of moving away from those categorical conclusions and moving towards something that looks a little bit more honest about what the science is, or I think honest about what the science is. Um, but I don't have a good answer as to what that would be, and I think that's the current debate, right? What do we move to, and how do we educate jurors about it? Where in my field, especially, I struggle all the time with how would I explain a likelihood ratio to a jury? I can't explain it to myself, mm. let alone explain it to a jury at this point. So how would I do something like that if we're talking about a bunch of different forensic disciplines each of which needs its own type of model and its own verbal equivalent to understand and then explain to a jury. But you can see then the temptation to hold on to the categorical conclusions which are easier to express verbally as opposed to coming in with a number and then trying to explain the statistics and what the number means. That's right. Okay. Yeah, so I see the the value and wanting to simplify things for a jury, especially because the criminal justice system, even though in the in the grand scheme of things moves very slowly, in the scheme of trial moves very quickly. So I see that that desire. But on the flip side, I see how important it is that we're being honest about forensics and the need for change because we know that there are problems. So one of the, um, the consequences of opening that box of statistics, you know, so right now in fingerprints, you know, let's say that you would only identify, you know, impressions that have a lot of information, you know, we'll, we'll say an abundance of information. That's where our identifications would typically land. But now because it's a continuum of information and you open up that statistical box, now we begin to give evidence on associations that are much weaker than identification. We could go into court and say, yes, based on these six matching characteristics, which, side note, would never, we would never be giving any, any evidence previously. That would have just been a no-value latent print. But now that I've got a stats model, I can um, say that these six matching characteristics, I'd expect to observe them in a, some other random person, one in 50,000 people. And in a city like Portland, you may have dozens, if not hundreds, of people that could be potentially associated with that print. It opens up a box, and that's one of the, the consequences. I'm sure in DNA, you're probably seeing the same thing. You're now seeing profiles where people are being included at fairly common rates where lots of people could be associated. Again, what are your thoughts about opening up that box with fingerprints and allowing for more impressions to be potentially associated, but also people to be statistically included in something that's not as discriminating as in the past? It makes me incredibly nervous. I, I don't trust our ability 
to walk that into a courtroom and really explain to a jury what that means and not have them completely gloss over with the statistics and just see fingerprint, we're done. So that makes me really, really nervous. I don't have a good answer for what to do about mm. that level of anxiety. I just know that that's a huge problem. But, I mean, it is the consequence. If it you open is. the box and the science allows for that, I mean, you know, even if the number is 1 in you know, 10,000, that's what the number is. Yeah. And, then, and that the science could back that up from a statistical perspective. Is there... Do you foresee that there might be, you know, ways using, you know, Rule 401 or something, you know, some sort of prejudicial versus, you know, relevance, um, you know, relevance yeah. you know, to limiting evidence? And if so, would you guys apply that to, to DNA as well, which we don't see it really applied to DNA? We don't. And, and I don't know if we would make that argument or not. I think that... I'm, I'm actually surprised you don't make that yeah. argument more. And I think that there is always the potential to misuse statistics or to to be able to use it to the benefit of the user. So I think that potential is always there. I think you're also always going to find that the the way that the arguments evolve over time is because a lawyer will get burned hard in courtroom and you know get called out in open court and then figure out a new way to handle that. So I think that the arguments evolve not on the front end of thinking about it in advance and trying to figure out how would I deal with this when it came into the courtroom, but rather on the back end after you've gotten burned in a case. Because lawyers like to win. Exactly. They don't like to lose. Yes, that's right. We're competitive people. Yes. yes. I think it's an interesting point in how nervous that makes you feel. I think that for many, many practitioners, like print examiners, they also have that nervousness about allowing these low-level associations into the courtroom, so much so that they want to isolate or protect the court system or the lawyers or the juries from this more confusing information. And then that's part of the reason why some examiners are hanging on to, no, I can only say these categorical conclusions. So while on the lawyer side, there's a push to, no, we want more statistical phrasing without necessarily understanding that all this other stuff follows from going in that direction. Yeah, and that I mean, right, that's the double-edged sword. If I heard you earlier, you would rather us move away from this conclusive match language, which means, frankly, going to something like statistics, mm -hmm. but then when you go to statistics, now you open up other weaker st statistics, but still value. I mean, even, you know, 1 in 50,000 or 1 in 100,000, in the right case, that could actually be fairly probative. I mean, if there's hey. lots of other corroborating evidence, that's just one more piece of the puzzle. If it's the only thing the person is being convicted on, I would agree with you, that could be problematic. If if a prosecutor just simply saw a report that said one in 100,000, well, we like this guy. There was an eyewitness that said that they thought maybe they saw him running away. Good enough, let's charge him and see what happens. I'd agree with you. But in the right context with the other evidence, it might actually be pretty valuable evidence. Right. But and I don't think the categorical conclusions with the statistical support are mutually exclusive. So we could retain our traditional language, just supporting it with statistics. And so people could have those statements that jurors are going to understand. And I think particularly that's the best option is the field deciding where we set that threshold because of the risk. What I think would be worst case scenario is 
trying to present some weaker evidence that's supported by a statistic, and then a judge saying, this isn't relevant. From the legal perspective, we're going to set the threshold as here, so this never comes into court because I, as a judge, have decided that a statistic of 1 in 10,000 is too... And and yet we haven't seen them do that with DNA at all. Right, but we know that they handle DNA quite differently, so I'm not sure that we want (laughs) to take that risk and that gamble to let the court set that without the community deciding this is what we feel is, a, is appropriate to start using this source, uh, you know, association language, or this is where we're going to set our threshold when we say this is a match or an identification, which I, I think is similar to what DNA has done. We can say this when we get to this level. Yeah, yeah there's got to be a, a partnership between the scientific community and the legal community because we our fields are overlapping it's you know the forensic community is walking into a courtroom to share what's happening in the science and the legal community is relying on the scientific community to bring that information and teach us how to use it but there's no conversation or it doesn't seem like there's a productive conversation between the two so that you can understand what I need from you and I can understand what you need from me and so there isn't that like let's work together to try and create something that melds these two worlds and instead it's one trying to dictate to the other and that's where we're running into all these problems because we've got things like rules of evidence that should apply but then you've got things like standards and protocols that should apply that aren't working together at the same time so i think that i think that pcast was right and nas was right when it said or it sort of implicitly said hey, the people we've excluded from this conversation are the scientists. So let's bring them into the conversation and marry that together with our rules of evidence to figure out what's going to be important here. And I think the communities have been trying to do that. I know from the forensic science perspective, we have been listening to the critics more and have been trying to make some changes or at least do some research to address some of these concerns that have been coming out. So I don't know. I do feel like within the last decade or so, we have made some advancements to have a closer relationship um, with the legal community. I still believe it is evolving and we need more work needs to be done. But, you know, the OSAC groups having this legal resource community committee reviewing particular standards or nesting academics directly in these standard-setting organizations, I think is kind of forced a closer relationship where you have to listen to the conversation they want to have. But but that's still top-down, right? I mean, we're still talking about, if you're talking about OSACs, you're talking about a level of removal between what's happening on the ground in the courtroom and what's happening at that level of we're going to try and dictate what's going to happen across the board. Policy setting. Policy setting, exactly. So there's got to be sort of more of an on-the-ground effort to say cases are happening right now, today. How are we going to deal with this right now, today? Uh, so just for the audience, and we're, I'm going to open it up to questions here in a second. I'm going to ask one more, maybe two more questions. But if you have a question you'd like to ask, we'll, uh, we'll let you think about it for a second and get some prep. Um, curious if you have any funny either judge or jury stories. Any, any stories from the, from the courtroom, wacky things you've observed? The the trial that's on my mind is obviously the one that I just finished that I can't talk about. So let me talk about a different one. <laughs> um, 
Uh, and it's actually not my trial. It was, so my husband happens to be a litigator as well. He's, he does civil litigation and he does a lot of arson work, so mm-hmm. fire science stuff. Um, and he just did a jury trial in the last year or two, um, an arson case where his client was charged or wasn't charged with the arson. His client was accused of arson by the insurance company uh-huh. of a residential arson. <clears throat> and he took it to trial. Um, he and his team took it to trial in federal court. And we're proving that it wasn't arson. It was actually an accidental cause to the fire, uh, not incendiary. And he's got his uh, fire science expert, his fire investigator on the stand. It's on cross from the other side. And the so everything's very scientific at that point, you know, and um, we can't really tell whether the jury is liking it or not liking it, what's going on, but it gets to cross and it's kind of tense in the room. And the the attorney on cross says something like, well, if, if you think it's in the standard, you know, do you have the standard? And the standard he's talking about is NFPA 921. It's the National Fire Protection oh, yeah, Agency. Very familiar, very familiar <laughs> right? NFPA 921. It's the standard. So he's saying, if you have the standard, what's the standard? And the expert pulls out the book and he kind of leans to the jury he's been very serious the whole time he kind of leans to the jury and he goes never leave home without it (laughs) and the jury like busts out laughing and at that moment we were like okay we're done here it's over (laughs) like he had his own little sidebar with the jury it was like they, they were on a team together all of a sudden and we knew at that point that case was won and it was it was a a million dollar verdict it was a great arson case and everything but it it was like one of those great moments for us nerd lawyers to be like yes standards and protocols win again You know, that sounds like every time you're testifying about fingerprints and you look over and see when the jurors start examining their own fingerprints, it's such a great feeling and kind of unique in forensic science where everyone has their own sample of the evidence right at their their fingertips. And they get really interested when you talk about them. Absolutely. All right. So I'm going to open up to uh, any questions from the audience. So I'm going to run into the audience for just a sec. Anybody got a question? All right, so in my limited experience uh, testifying, there's been a, a lack of skilled cross-examination uh, from the defense, and I personally, um, I'm looking forward to the day when I get to actually provide the information that I think the defense deserves uh, in trial. Um, you've already pointed that out multiple times, that they just don't have access to the information, and I know things in a case where there's there's things in limitations that need to be talked about. Um, But in trial, I feel a lack of control over being able to state those things. Um, I'm I'm curious uh, if people like yourself have an eye on attending conferences like this where we educate on uh, this type of evidence and what we're doing and where we're going um, and how we should be presenting our information. Because I think there were a lot of topics this week um, that would be helpful to defense attorneys in understanding um, and how they can how they can talk to us and access those limitations. So I think that's a great point. Um, I will say that even in locally in Portland, it wasn't like I heard a lot about this conference in the defense community. So I think that there there should be and there could be an effort to get 
information into the defense community about conferences like this so that they know that they are invited to attend and they would be welcome to attend. Because there isn't necessarily the assumption that we would all be welcome in the room and that it's it's a little bit like um, inviting the fox into the hen house. Are you actually inviting us into the hen house? You know, And so um, that's one thing. As far as the lack of skilled cross-examination, I tend to agree with you. A lot of the cases that I see on post-conviction, it really comes down to the fact that that defense attorney didn't know what questions to ask, didn't know where the assumptions were, and that analyst who's on the stand doesn't get the option of just saying, here, let me give it to you, let me help you along with this. So there does need to be more of a conversation in advance. I have tried to sit down with analysts on the other side in advance for that very purpose. Because we don't have a right to deposition in advance of a criminal trial in Oregon, I have tried to instead just sit down and have an informal conversation. And sometimes you get cut off at the knees, and that is not acceptable. So there's, there's got to be a way that we change that culture so that we can have the conversation so that I don't have to get somebody on the stand before I start learning what their opinions really are and what they aren't. Yeah, I, I think something that I've experienced as a private consultant, because you know, working with criminal and civil cases, my reports tend to be very detailed. And my experience with having such detailed reports and even kind of the escalating approach that Carrie talked about is that when I worked for the state crime lab, our reports were very short and just had the most limited information available. And, and I even, you know, said it earlier, the you know, idea was, well, these are the results. This is what the cops just want to know. If, if the attorneys want to know more, get me on the stand and I'll talk more about it. But as I've learned over the years, and especially in pri private consulting, is the more information you have in the report, it allows the attorney to avoid going to trial. And the more information that's in there, you guys can make better decisions about which cases you want to take the trial, as opposed to going to trial and then figuring out what's going on in the case. A good attorney would never do that. We would never do that. Exactly. There's, a, there's a rule of cross-examination or of any examination. Do not ask a question you don't already know the answer to. If you don't know the answer, you just don't ask the question. And that's why you're not seeing good cross, because the person doesn't know the answer in advance. So they're not going to risk it on cross. And it's not in the report. It's not in the report, right? yeah. The report just is one simple conclusion without necessarily all the other information surrounding it. Yeah. That's right. I wanted to make mention of the fox in the hen house idea. Um, I know that we've seen the American Academy of Forensic Science meeting sort of evolve. Their jurisprudence section originally started out predominantly forensic scientists coming to talk about, you know, different legal topics. But our favorite forensic scientist or lawyer in Minnesota, Christine Funk, talked about some of her early history in attending this meeting because she was interested in forensic scientists and forensic science in the law. So she attended some of the meetings and she didn't get a resounding welcome her first couple of years. But now she is very prominent in the meetings and she is part of the, the group that vets who comes and speaks and is well known within that community and now has great relationships with forensic scientists. So it's something that definitely meetings can evolve and you know when you welcome them into the community they tend to come back and they return and they share their knowledge with others and she's had great presentations where she's sharing her knowledge about what the defense community is looking for from forensic scientists so it's been a mutually beneficial relationship to have 
um, the defense community come in and share their knowledge. They also then brought with them some judges and talked about what judges are looking for in trials or what they're deciding when they're looking at different motions for exclusion. Um, so I think that relationship really has an opportunity to blossom within within these types of meetings. Yeah, and that's a good point. And Carrie and I are both legal nerds, so we like to go to CLEs and we present to attorneys there. But we also sit through some of the, <laughs> the constitutional law sessions, and we, we actually like seeing some of the case law that's developing. And I've, I've always actually enjoyed going to the lawyers' conferences and learning your language a bit so that, again, we can communicate better. At, 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 you know, as two disparate groups trying to come together and how we can present this best to triers of fact. Yeah, I, I've actually um, avoided filing motions because I've learned more about what the language means and doesn't mean so that I don't have to file the motion to compel because I know that they can't do what I think that they should be able to do because now I know more about the science and I know what the limits are. So it's avoided some of the adversarial part of the process just by sitting down and having a conversation and recognizing, okay, in my ideal CSI world, that would have been great on television, but it doesn't work out in real life. Great. I won't bother to ask the question. So on a similar note there, do you see any desire on the legal side to allow scientific testimony as more of a presentation instead of answering questions from the lawyers? And limiting ourselves then to just the questions that are asked? God, that would be amazing. I don't see any movement towards that. I, I think that the the justice system is entrenched in the way that we we have always run the justice system. It's, you know, exam and cross-exam. And um, I think it assumes... Maybe you guys should change as Maybe well we should bit. change, exactly. I... I've always really wanted to explore the idea of doing more hearings with special masters. Mm, So, for example, in eyewitness misidentification, the whole reason that there was a change in the law in eyewitness misidentification cases is because, or at least in a few states where the law has changed on identification, is because there was a special hearing with a special master out in New Jersey. Um, The New Jersey Supreme Court had ordered this special hearing to understand what's the state of memory science and how does it affect eyewitness identifications. So they had this hearing that lasted several weeks. The special master considered thousands of articles, heard from her testimony. It was much more of a process of understanding and coming to recommendations that then went to the New Jersey Supreme Court that changed the law and then that fed into Oregon and Oregon Supreme Court did the same thing, changed the law on identifications. But it was because we took it out of the adversarial process and put it into a process where we could better understand the state of the science and I would love to do the same thing on some of these forensic methods where we need to have better understanding than what the adversarial process can give us. In some ways, I see that through OSAC. That's a little bit what's going on. The standards are trying to be created, but the problem is that the judges aren't involved, yeah. and, and it's not getting into the courtroom. I mean, it's it's a standard that's being created, but then there's no enforcement mechanism. The, what you described, there is now an enforcement mechanism in the courtroom, right. and I think that's what's been missing from all of this. We haven't talked a ton about this, but on the legal side, it seems that they're also driving their own bus in making potential changes to the federal rules of evidence. So they're looking at how do we control forensic science testimony 
by changing the federal rules of evidence to limit the scope of some things that forensic science can testify to. So it, there was a, a conference on that, and they had some of these presentations. It wasn't probably the same as the special master with a week long and thousands of articles, but it does seem that each side is kind of trying to do make their own small changes of way of the ways these interactions in court happen. It would be nice, again, if we could sort of marry those up and do a better job of discussing together rather than this side working on it this way and this side working on it from that direction. And potentially but, coming to opposite conclusions. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think eventually we're on a collision course. Something is yeah. going to happen. I don't know which side will win, but probably both sides will lose. Yeah, that's right. Or the worst case scenario where each side tells the other what to do from their own perspective. I think there'd be nothing really worse than the law side telling the science side how to do science or the science side telling the lawyers how to do the law. There really needs to be that coming together to work the best way forward and have that information, the best information in the hands of the decision makers. All right. One more audience question. Uh, There we go. Uh, First of all, thank you for bringing the double loop to the Pacific Northwest. Appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Um, my question is, how do you uh, gauge the legitimacy of your defense experts? Because I've, I've seen uh, times in court where I've, I've really been concerned about what they have stated. Um, and it seems that they are not under the same uh, burden uh, as we are with regards to uh, proficiency exams, accreditation. So how do, you, how do you gauge that? How do you know that the forensic science that you're getting is accurate? Short answer is we don't. I, I can't tell you how inefficient a process it is to find an expert on the defense side because that's what you're trying to determine. Is this expert really truly an expert or have they just held themselves out as an expert? And a lot of times you don't know that until, like I said, you get burned on the stand and you get embarrassed in open court. Then you know, don't, don't use that guy again. Right. But there isn't a really good way for us to find experts in advance because a lot of what we're doing is just based on word of mouth. Who's used somebody in X discipline? You know, you're asking on a listserv or whatever. And you're hoping that whoever tells you that they've used them has actually used them in court and not just happened to to talk to them at a conference or something like that. So there's not a really good way to understand whether you're getting good information in advance of having to rely on it. And we need a better way of finding good experts, of being able to vet them in advance to make sure that we're getting good forensics from the defense side as well. I will say that I have my go-to experts on different areas that I go back to over and over and over because of that very reason. I'm not gonna go out there and risk one of my cases on some new name that I've never tested out before because I don't wanna get burned in open court. And I potentially have an innocent client who is relying on me to know what I'm doing. And so I can't do that. I can't take a chance on somebody. But it also means that we've got new people coming into forensics that want to do this work and are trying to to get a foot in the door and are good at what they do, but people aren't going to be willing to take a chance on them. So we have to come up with a better way of of understanding what's going to be a good forensic expert and what's not going to be. Glenn, how, how many times have you actually testified for defense? You've been doing defense cases a long time. 
have you had the experience in open court where someone could say, I've had this guy in trial and he's good? Yeah, I, I think I've testified for defense uh, maybe three times. I'm about to go next week on a fourth, assuming it's still going. Uh, and, and there was a fifth time where we showed up to trial, and we sh I showed up, we were there, we were going, and then at the very last minute, the prosecutor pulled the plug on it because the witness, the, the state's witness, had introduced, not telling anyone, new evidence at the last minute, hmm. had changed the images, uh, that the, the, the fingerprint identity, they had actually used new images that were not disclosed. The night before the trial, they had gone in, taken new photographs, charted those out, for their presentation, but those hadn't been disclosed. Yeah. And the prosecutor went, uh, we're just going to withdraw charges and we'll refile at a later time. And wow. they, they never did. So, yeah, I, I, I don't go that often. I've had, I, I get maybe 30 to 40 to 50 private cases a year. And I've testified maybe once a year. I've had, um, I had a recent bloodstain expert um, we were talking in advance of his trial testimony, and I had asked him the question in prep saying, you know, how many cases have you testified in? And he said, well, there's a difference now. There's a difference between how many cases have I served as an expert in and how many cases has I've testified in. And he said that the reason that those numbers are so different for him is because he has had so many cases where he has offered an opinion and it's gone to the prosecution and the prosecution said, yeah, that guy's right let's resolve this in advance of trial. And that, to yeah. me, was the mark of a great expert because he, he didn't need to take the stand for that. He was able to be, to be transparent enough in his report and be willing to talk to the other side that they could come to an agreement in advance. That's a helpful expert. Yeah. I, I think it's a great place to, to end on that. And, uh, Janice, I want to really thank you for your, your time and your expertise and sharing all your opinions with us. Really appreciate it. A big uh, round of applause. Thank you, guys. And Carrie Hall, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Eric, any closeout? Well, I just want to give big thanks to the Pacific Northwest Division for having you guys out there and for allowing me to join from the other side of the country. But especially for all your listeners out there, and especially at the last big IAI conference, I really got to see all the new listeners to the podcast and just want to thank everyone out there that listens. Everyone there that listens and, and has joined us there today, it really is a great thing meeting and talking with all those listeners out there. All right. Well, this is Glenn Langberg signing off from the Pacific Northwest Division of the IAI, Northwest Association of Forensic Scientists here in Portland, Oregon. Thanks, everybody. Have a good week. All right, big thanks to uh, you know everyone that uh, made this happen uh, out in the Pacific Northwest Division Conference. And I uh, just want to wrap up this episode reminding all our listeners out there that they can follow us on Twitter uh, and also on Instagram now at Double Loop Pod. Uh, we've got a new website, DoubleLoopPodcast.com, and we're going to be putting some new stuff up there pretty soon, so keep checking back. Maybe some merch coming. Uh, we're really close on that. Uh, if you have questions for us, Eric at RayForensics.com or Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think about some of these topics. Uh, also, uh, remember uh, anything that we say, anything that anyone uh, as a guest says is uh, their own opinion and doesn't represent necessarily any agency that they may work for. Uh, and with that, uh, thank you guys and we'll talk to you later. <laughs>